Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is your familiar host, Vincent Horn, and I am joined today by a very special guest. I am excited to be talking with Albert Grab today, a resident of the West Coast. Uh, you live in Los Angeles, California, and um, we're going to hear more about your background, but welcome, Albert. Thank you so much for being on Buddhist Geeks. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Vincent. It's really kind of a treat, a little bit of an honor to be here. So kind of you to say. Um, so I wanted to explain a little bit about uh, our background to get a relational history together and how I know you and what I know about you and why I invited you to be part of this series, Meditating on Psychedelics, which we're doing through Buddhist Geeks and which some people I'm sure are really enjoying and others are like, why do I have to see another Meditating on Psychedelics podcast <laughs> come through? <laughs> I'm tired of this. Uh, and to those that feel that way, uh, I apologize. Um, and yet here we are. <laughs> so, um, so Albert, we met, uh, what was it? It had to be several years ago, probably 2014 or so in Los Angeles, I think is the first time I met you. Maybe it's a Buddhist geeks conference. Uh, no, we actually were briefly on, well, we were on retreat together for 10 days at spirit rock. Oh, that's right. That's the first time I met you, was at Spirit Rock. You're right. right. And I introduced myself briefly. Um, and We then were down then, in front of the kitchen, weren't we? Hanging out. Oh, that's, that's a detail that escapes me. But Well, you remembered that we met there, so that's a big <laughs> detail that escaped me. And then uh, I think the next time face-to-face -face was, at, was at the conference. Nice. And so... We met at Spirit Rock. We were both on retreat together. I believe that was a concentration retreat, if I recall, um, with Philip Moffat and others. I think it was the 10-day Vipassana fall retreat w with, um, yeah, no, no, it was because Emily was, um, I think, working under the tutelage of Jack. Yeah. And uh, you were along for the ride. Oh, this was a Vipassana retreat. Wow, it's been a while. Uh, the retreats bleed together after a while, don't they? Um, yeah, well, probably more for you than for me. But Well, so at this point, that when we met, I recall that you were uh, had been practicing for a little bit, and you were really starting to kind of jump headfirst into the pool, the practice pool. And um, at some point, we reconnected, um, and also worked together for some time in a kind of teacher-student dynamic relationship over Skype mostly. You also have come out and uh, sat some retreats with Emily and I um, here in North Carolina, which was quite fun. Um, and what I've loved about your, you know, getting to know you and your practice and um, kind of your interesting combinations of interest is that on the one hand, your background is in radiology as a medical professional. So you work in the medical field and um, do all kinds of interesting stuff with uh, devices that look peer into people's bodies <laughs> and discover interesting things about what's going on in there. And, um, and also you've done a lot of work peering into your own experience. And uh, I remember when I was first getting to know you and hearing about your practice, I, I recall you going on a long uh, Jhana retreat with Lee Brasington, who I've also practiced with and appreciate a lot. 
And I remember you exploring the jhanas and really that being a really pivotal kind of experience, exploring concentration practice. Um, and so that's something that you've had a lot of interest in as well as Vipassana and insight meditation and all kinds of other stuff. But I know you as a practitioner, as a medical professional, as a, a committed um, student of practice and um, as a very solid human being. And the reason I invited you on today is because you also, uh, I believe, heard about this Johns Hopkins University psilocybin study through Buddhist Geeks when I spoke to Roland Griffiths a couple of years back and signed up to be a participant in that. You're one of the few rare people in the Dharma world who's been meditating for a while and hasn't done psychedelics. So you, you fit the criteria of this yeah. interesting study. Um, I like, I like was, the, the, the way they describe it as hallucinogen naive, or I had been hallucinogen naive. So that must be a small population. Did, did they talk about that with you? About how many people are uh, um, in that camp? Because I know they were having trouble right, finding participants right. for the study. Yeah, I think that they were a little bit overly optimistic about the number of people that they could find on the East Coast who had what they described as, you know, long meditation practices, long-term meditation practices, but who were essentially hallucinogen naive. And I think that the problem is is that, you know, if you're a if you're a committed Buddhist, you're not going to ingest a hallucinogen and that others who might be less committed are just sort of experimental. And so, you know, a lot of them had tripped. And I, I think that, you know, the, the net had to be cast a little bit wider and for a longer period of time to ultimately recruit. I, I think that, they're, that, that they wanted 40, and I think that they recently reached that number. But I think it took, it took more work and more time than they, than they had originally anticipated. Well, I know the Buddhist Geeks conversation helped, um, and thank you, Buddhist Geeks, for helping push psychedelic science forward, and for Albert, oh, your participation gosh, yeah. in that study. Yeah, that um, was that was January 2016 when you interviewed, or that's when I heard the podcast. January 16. So it's now fast forward, almost November 17, and. Um, we're going to kind of talk about the study. One of the main things I was curious to hear from you is, you know, what was it like? You know, what was it like doing the study? Um, what did, you know, what was the actual study like? What did you learn? What were the experiences like? How's it been since? It's been just over a year. But also, it seems like it'd be useful for people to hear a bit more about your kind of practice background and what what you're bringing into this um, this study, which was really looking at the um, the impact of of psilocybin use in, I'll use this term, I don't know if you'd use this or they used it, but advanced practitioners, advanced meditators. Uh, yeah. People that have, are seasoned, you know, seasoned with years of practice. Right. So, and, then, and one caveat about that in terms of my own practice, I, I think that they really were looking for people with 10,000, 15,000 hours of experience. And I think that as it got more difficult to recruit, I think that the bar was slowly lowered, although I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think possible though. Yeah. And, and, and so the caveat with me is, is that I really only started, uh, well, I'll, I'll go through my practice experience. I mean, I, 
you know, I went to my first yoga class 20 years ago, somehow, you know, was introduced to meditation through the Shavasana practice and very slowly began to develop my own practice. Um, I had, I had at about the same time, about 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to read about MBSR and had actually sent a close friend um, to it, had recommended that. And I, and I kept following the MBSR literature. So that was sort of going on in parallel um, for about 15 years or so. I, I probably had a practice that, would, that consisted of 10 to 15 minutes of mindfulness of breath three or four times a week. And, and I could begin to feel that uh, for brief periods of time after practice that, that there would be this benefit in terms of just more relaxation. I could give a talk in front of people that I was normally very nervous about or I could have a difficult meeting. But it never felt like there was a real cumulative benefit to practice. And then about seven years ago, you were like microdosing on your meditation practice for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Seven years ago, sorry. <laughs> no, no, but but, but it, it it is interesting how you know, like, I think that one has to kind of pass through some sort of threshold dose in order to really sense this this accumulation of benefit. And um, seven years ago, I was literally having an argument with somebody. And they turned to me and said, um, "Really, you know, the, the most extraordinarily helpful thing that I that I'd ever received, which was, is that, you know, that they felt that the way I had just made my point in the argument had revealed something about my personality that that they didn't appreciate. It was almost verbatim that way. And I had this this very very profound, clear epiphany. This voice in my head sort of agreed with them." And literally said, and if you meditate 20 minutes every day, you can begin to address that. And so I started meditating 20 minutes every day. And at 12 weeks, I looked down at my hands and I had spontaneously and unintentionally stopped what had been a 50-year nail-biting habit that had tormented me. And the realization that this practice was really abating my my anxiety essentially was just you know it was just fantastic and i it, it was clear that i was benefiting a lot from it and i thought well what happens at 25 minutes what happens at 30 and every time i upped the ante it just you know it just it just helped and at that point i made this decision that i needed to this naive decision that you know, I needed to now go and share this with the world. <laughs> so I found something called the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA, and you could be certified or trained in mindfulness facilitation. Um, I participated in that for about a year, and I had a lot of extraordinary teachers and colleagues and just really started learning about what deep practice was really about. And Part of that training required me to do this thing called a silent retreat. So I went on that and 
the very, very first silent retreat I'd gone on, you know, also just landed with me in this incredible way. Um, I actually, I literally left the first retreat wondering whether I had been brainwashed because I, I was so skeptical and yet I just had this. Yes, you were. <laughs> I, I, and I remain, I remain, you know, I remain to some extent, but, but it was like, you know, there were all these strangers on this retreat and I just felt so much love and, you know, compassion for these people that I didn't know. And I, I really wondered whether they had like put something in the water or whatever. And, and, and eventually I, I, I think that I came to understand that, that, you know, there was this phenomenon of, of vagal tone and how, you know, we practice and we can sort of upregulate our parasympathetic nervous systems and we become more pro-social. Um, and, you know, it just, it just continued to feel great. I used to say that I was the poster child, you know, for, for mindfulness meditation. Like whatever I tried just worked and um, it just kept going on retreat, the jhana retreat that you described I did with Lee Brasington in uh, 2015 was a seminal, was a big milestone. Um, and there was an experience on that retreat that I think is eventually important to the story, which was that on about the 25th day, uh, while practicing, I entered this this state, and I, I was in this state, I, I entered it at 9.20 in the morning, and and for like, uh, what is it, six hours and 40 minutes, I, I, made, I was in it, and then I had my interview with Lee at 4 p.m., and it was gone, and that state was just... Oh, it was this present momentness. It was this almost an inability to have any anxiety about anything coming up in the future or any regret or dissatisfaction about anything that had happened in the past because I was just there and it wasn't thought it wasn't as if there weren't thoughts or whatever, but just this profound presence and and as soon as I opened my mouth at four PM to talk about it with Lee it vanished and I started, I literally, I literally started crying. You know, it had been that, it had been that intense, that wonderful and um, really grateful to Lee for giving me this extraordinary perspective. I walked away from there very, very, very grateful to simply have experienced that. And, and I never thought that I would come close, you know, unless I had elected to again go on a long, you know, month long or more retreat and, but, but still somehow very satisfied. And, um, I think it was about that time that I probably started working with you and Emily. Um, and I, and, and after that, I don't know how important it is, but I, st I started working more with awareness practices with Dzogchen. Um, and I think that sort of leads us up to the, 
the podcast of January 2016. What was it about the study or the conversation with Roland that, that led you to be interested in doing the study? If you can recall. Well, I, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't anything in particular, Vince. It was like many, many things that have occurred over the last six or seven years. There was, there was just a knowing. Like, as soon as he sort of extended that invitation to participate in the study, it was like, oh, that's the next thing I'm supposed to do. And it was, I mean, it was definitely colored about, I don't, I don't know if you remember how you were participating in that discussion, but, you know, you painted it pretty positively as well, your, your prior experiences with entheogens or hallucinogens. And, and, and I remember there were a lot of teachers that I talked to, but it was, it was after the, that I'd made the decision to do it. But there were a lot of, a lot of teachers of mine who said, gosh, wish we could participate in that, you know, but we, we're not hallucinogen naive, essentially. You know, everybody just felt, everybody was very encouraging. Secret. But I don't, I don't know that I needed encouragement. I mean, it was just like, okay, this is the next thing I'm supposed to do. I mean, I... Interesting. I, Which is a theme in, in what you've described in your practice background. Yeah. Is that an uptick in the parasympathetic nervous system? What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's... I mean, you know, like many, many other people describe, right? There's just this increased comfort with with intuition hmm. um, certainly can be yeah it, it has been for me like just just being more comfortable with with knowing what the next thing I'm supposed to do is and that that one was just okay and and, and maybe not knowing why <laughs> oh no I definitely didn't know why yeah that's weird. Knowing and not knowing together. That's interesting. Right. I was just supposed to do it. And there was... And, and imagine... So I'm, I'm 62 and I'd gone... You know, I'd gone all that time. Obviously having some curiosity, but there was always a fear. I mean, I'm... You know, I was around in the 60s and 70s. Believe me, there were, there were many, many opportunities... And um, for whatever reason, hadn't taken advantage of them. And now, at this age, um, to be very enthusiastic about it. Now, I think it's important to point out that I think that a lot of my experience or, or the, my comfortableness with that decision was influenced by the fact that I was going to be monitored by two very experienced people and in in my particular situation, I had, you know, my two monitors. I mean, I, I can discuss more of the setup, but I had a yeah. uh, an addiction psychiatrist, an MD-PhD, and the other fellow was a PhD in psych who was interested in um, effective processing, you know, how we, how we process emotion. 
and I was, and during the experience, I was five minutes away from a world-class emergency room. So I think that that had some influence. Well, not on my decision, but certainly, you know, because like I said, the, the decision was almost instantaneous, but but how comfortable I felt, you know, in fully engaging with it was influenced by all those factors. Yeah, that makes good sense. Um, especially the, the piece about being in or near hospital and having trained psychological professionals. It was like w- the worst case scenario arose, you're actually in the best care imaginable. Right. And, and unbeknownst to me, there's um, your blood pressure goes up, at least with psilocybin. And so they had a whole protocol of what to do if one's, you know, if the subject's blood pressure exceeded, actually, not, I was going to say X, but it wasn't X, it was 160 millimeters of mercury. Um, and interestingly, my blood pressure normally runs below 120. After the, after the experience, they told me that I, I'd gotten to 160, but not beyond, so they never had to do anything. But that sh- you got right up to the edge, right? But I, I and I think that that's also an indication of how sensitive I am to that particular substance. I mean, I, I, I think that my experience was—I can't say more profound, but I think it was a little bit longer than what they were used to seeing. They had to monitor me for an extended period of time. Okay, interesting. So, so, so let's get into more of the details about what the experiment was like. Um, I understand from our last conversation there were actually two different experiments that took place. Um, could you tell tell everyone a little bit more about like the actual logistics and kind of the basic structure of the whole thing? Right. Um, well, the primary experiment, um, if you if you're really interested, there's about an 18 minute talk that Roland gives um, on TED Med that really gives a lot of detail. Um, All right, I'll, I'll link to that in the episode notes for people. Um, essentially, I I showed up there in um, March of 2016, had a series of interviews, physical examination, blood work, questionnaires up the wazoo, um, 30 or 40 questionnaires with hundreds and hundreds of questions and then and then a baseline functional MRI that included um, meditating with uh, six minute runs of mindfulness of breath meta and open awareness practice and then a series, uh, I, I would listen to short segments of very beautiful, ethereal-like music, and after each of the 60 or 90 seconds of the music, I would, you know, while, while the functional MRI was on, I was listening to the music, and then I would give these subjective ratings of how I had experienced the music in terms of spaciousness and timelessness and whether I'd experienced joy or sorrow, um, about five or six different scales, I recall. So that was baseline. And then between 
March and um, May of 2016, I spent about eight hours mostly Skyping with the two fellows who would eventually be my monitors. Then I went back in um, May, I think it was May, and the studies controlled, so I didn't know on the morning of the experience whether I would be given placebo or drug. And I had to submit a urine test to make sure that I hadn't, you know, that there was nothing on board. So waited around nervously for that. Just, And then I think finally at about 9 a.m. got dosed. And um, the dose was given to me. It was a, uh, wasn't mushrooms, right? It's just the, the, the distilled or the purified psilocybin. It was in a capsule. But it was handed to me in a 600-year-old stone chalice from Mexico, I think is how I remember it. And we actually did a little ceremony. And I, I really want to comment on just, you know, the, the reverence with which all the experimenters hold the, the substance or the plant in, you know, with. They, they really, um, I don't know, they, they, they really imbue the experience with a, with a certain specialness that 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 I really felt and again you know just kind of added to my comfort with the experience and then after ingestion I just started they just sat me down and I started looking at um, these pictures of mandalas and within a few minutes I I knew that I had been dosed and the way the experiment is structured is you, you're... That sounds pretty quick. Uh, I, I felt it very... I mean, I, I was wondering whether I was just sort of tricking myself into it, but mm-hmm. um, as I was looking at the mandalas, I... Yeah, I felt... I was quickly drawn to you know, the more abstract images and then just started having body sensations probably within 15, 20 minutes. And they lied me down on a nice couch, therapeutic looking couch and um, put headphones on me and uh, I uh, uh, just, just had my eyes covered. And I would lay down, I would listen to some very trippy music for about 30 minutes and then at the end of the 30 minutes I would sit up and they would ask me to do two minutes of mindfulness of breath two minutes of metta and then two minutes of open awareness and at the end of each of those runs I was again asked to rate them on scales of I think it was spaciousness, timelessness, effort. How much effort did it take to, you know, maintain the object of meditation, joy, sorrow, positive and negative emotional valence? And I have to say that for the first three hours, it was just largely a joke. I mean, I was just happy to be able to sit up 
and not fall over. Um, it was, it was, it was that difficult. Um, yeah, this sounds like it'd be challenging with a, with a real potent dose of, of something <laughs> to, to, as an, as a activity. It sounds like it'd be like, take some effort. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then, you know, during, during that time, you know, the, the, the meditation was really kind of like nothing was really happening there. And the action was when I was laying down, listening to the music. And there was, you know, this intense disorientation. Um, and I think that that, you know, those first three hours were really marked by kind of a repeated sense of, of dissolution, um, the this boundary between myself, inside, outside, was just kind of constantly dissolving. I saw, I experienced the sense of, I, I wrote about this, that, that I had this sense of kind of generation, death, rebirth, you know, and it wasn't visual. I just, I, I'm, I think one thing that, that was interesting for me was it was more somatic. Everything was very, very somatic for me. I, I mean, I definitely had visuals, mm. but very somatic. And, um, and then, you know, I think that's about as much as I want to say about the first three hours, unless you want to ask anything specific. No, no. I remember being laid back down after meditating at like three or three and a half hours and laying there for a few minutes listening to the music. And all of a sudden, I raised my hand. I said, you know, I, I know that I'm not required to report anything, or, but I just want you guys to know that a really important piece of me just came back online. And, and up until that point, I... I did not have any sense of of real agency. Like I couldn't choose what I wanted to attend to. Um, and I remember many, many times like the music, I, I would be the music. And at that point, it suddenly shifted and was like, okay, I have a little bit of sense of what I want to pay attention to. And, you know, like this sense of self just kind of was back and it was great and it was it there was a relief frankly um i think that the first 3 hours were marked by 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 some dysphoria i mean it was magical but it was also dysphoric and part of that dysphoria frankly is just a little bit of something visceral, either nausea or something in my gastrointestinal tract that I think is really common to psilocybin. But at the three, after the three and a half hour mark, it just starts getting better and better and cooler and more amazing. And the, and the meditation now just is, is extraordinary. The, the, the spaciousness and the dimensionality of what I'm experiencing when I get up and the ease 
of being able to, you know, focusing on my breath. I remember one time I was doing mindfulness of breath and it was like, it was a joke, you know, like I could totally pay attention to, to my breath and have it there and, and it, and at the same time be doing a million other things in the background. Um, and it was extremely, extremely enjoyable. The, um, and it was cool to be able to watch my rating of the experience, you know, from about the fourth hour to the seventh or eighth hour. It just seemed to get better and better and better. You know, the, the amount of effort that I had to make was less and less. Um, And and the amount of you know the the amount of, of of love, frankly, that I could experience when practicing meta was just like nothing I I had ever experienced or ever imagined. And all of it was was just so much. There was. There, there was an extraordinary experience where I began remembering every beautiful moment of my life. I'm, I'm, I suspect that this is a more typical hallucinogenic experience, but I, I began to just see every wonderful moment that I'd ever had. And, and the, um, the sense of joy and gratitude were overwhelming. I mean, I was just, I was crying and uh, laughing at the same time. And then, more interestingly, I began to experience every really horrible, bad piece of shit that I'd ever, ever known. And, and that was the most, that was really, to me, the most interesting part of the experience, because I was crying, and then I realized that I was crying as much in gratitude, even for all the shit. And, and I had enough agency at that moment to go, wait a minute, that's bullshit. No way. Let's play it back. And I, and I really had this ability to go back and kind of, you know, experience all that negative stuff again. And there was still all this, frankly, this gratitude. And I, and, I, and I became very aware that, you know, how, how wonderful, you know, that I, that I just, that I had this life, this instantiation that, that, whoa, you know, thank you, thank you, you know. The whole, from then on, you know, the, the whole thing was imbued with this intense sense of, gratefulness um, and there was a lot of um, I also remember that as I as I was slowly coming down that I maintained this this pretty intense situational awareness you know like I kind of was very much aware of the the other the other two men in the room what what they might be experiencing um, that was that was really unique 
It's really, really unique. So it's, it sounds like, um, from what I'm hearing, this was a, you said several hours and it kept, there was a kind of a ramping up of some kind of experience. Uh, this sounds from my experience and from the research I've done, this sounds like a longer than average, um, and, and you, you mentioned this actually, but it, it does sound like a longer than average experience. Um, I don't know if that's true in, in these conditions or not, because I'm, I'm not that familiar with the, with the lab and what they are used to, but just, I just figured I'd say that because. Yeah, I got the sense, know, I got the sense that most people were out the door by 5 PM and they couldn't let me leave until like after seven, you know, and I was, and when I left, I still had powers. I mean, I wasn't tripping by any stretch of the imagination, but I still had, I still had this, this, this situational awareness is the only thing that I can describe, you know, the only way I can describe it. Something, yes, something else, really something else that I think, you know, is very relevant to practice that, that, that happened during that period of time that I want to mention, which was that I was doing I was doing open awareness practice and there was, you know, something came into my field of awareness and there was suddenly this realization that I did not need to sort of check in any shape, way or form what was arising because indeed it was open awareness. Like there was no need for admonishment. There was no need for correction. Like I didn't have to check on an instruction set. Like it was, it was okay, but that's real, real awareness practice. Well, but, but, but then what arose for me somehow I connected that to self-compassion and self-acceptance mm. that that was also a really really important insight that holy shit you know it's like it's it's kind of all okay like i really am doing my best here <laughs> and and whatever arises is is okay and and i think that you know holy cow i i guess that means that most other people are kind of you know they're doing the the same thing. Same yeah. boat. Same boat. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, you can read it, you can say it, you can think about it, but it was it was kind of visceral. It was experiential in a in a in a beautiful way. Yes. Yes. And it, it carries th- it carries through, I think, in terms of how you're conveying it even now. And, you know, I think that's something that people uh we're always tuning into not just the words, but the the aliveness dancing behind them. And, you know, people know when something is real for another person. And uh, I hear that in, in your descriptions for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. So, An- another just just another thing that I'm no, just just profoundly grateful for. You know, that experience was just so life changing. Okay, so there's a few directions here I want to go, but let me let me just lay them out. So one is I, I want to talk about 
life change, you know, the life changingness of experience and in the term integration comes to mind um, because obviously it's been some time now after these experiences, you know, a good year or so at least. Um, this was the, uh, and I also want to say this is the first experience, but there was, there was at least one more, I believe you mentioned going back into the lab, you know, during the study, you're going in multiple times getting placebo. No, getting it turns out, it turns different. out that you keep going back until you get dosed. So I got dosed first time out. So, so oh, experiment okay. one ends uh two yeah one and done it ends two months later when they um i can't remember what the term of art for it is but basically you know they they open the magic envelope and they go oh yeah he got dosed like like we didn't know i got dosed but officially as soon as the researchers know that indeed i got psilocybin i'm done and now I'm eligible if I want to participate in a second study, which was basically designed to have the psilocybin peak while you were inside the functional MRI scanner. By the way, I think that, that some people are going to want to know this. Um, I During the first experiment, I was dosed one day on, on a Tuesday basically and then Wednesday I went back into the functional MRI scanner um, had baseline values and then meditated in the scanner and then repeated those little musical vignettes you know and and and, and the ratings that was all done once once again after the dosing 24 hour about 24 hours after being dosed so the second experiment was um, being dosed in a way that, you know, about 30 minutes before you're put inside a functional MRI scanner. And I have to say that that, that was one of the most, I think that was the most dysphoric thing I've ever experienced because the dose is ramping up and I'm in, I'm, you know, kind of contained in this narrow tube and oh, yeah. it is so loud. And I'm an, I'm, I'm a radiologist. I mean, I've had tons of MRIs, you know, some diagnostically, some almost just for fun, but this was not fun. Um, in fact, I, I had one of my monitors they offered this and I took advantage of it. He he actually sat in the room with me with his hand on my thigh, you know, just letting me know he was there. And I had a button in my left hand that I could push to just, you know, to to to, to call it off. The safety yeah. release valve. Um, Come on, let it let me out the it's the ejection button. <laughs> and one of the funniest things was is that so I wasn't permitted to meditate. You know, I had to sort of try to remain in my default mode state, whatever that is when you're on psilocybin. Um, but and there would be like you know these these uh, functional MRI runs go about eight or ten minutes, and it's extremely loud. And then at the end of the run, you know, I'm dying in there, right? And then at the end, the the sound would stop. And the voice of this really 
pleasant young woman would come on and say, Albert, how was that? And I would go, God, that was just one of the most horrible things. And then she'd go in her pleasant voice, are you ready for the next sequence? (laughs) (laughs) You know, she was just reading the script, right? And, oh, I go, yeah, okay. And we do it again and again. But, but then at the end of all the baseline uh, scanning, I, I got to start meditating. And, and look, you know, I have no way of knowing, you know, N of one here. Was it, was it the way that the, and, and the dose that I got in the scanner, I don't think was as big as the one that I'd received in experiment one. But as I meditated, I started to feel better. And it was really cool because I did six minutes of mindfulness of breath. And, and still, at the end of that, those first six minutes, my ratings in terms of, um, you know, negative emotional valence, you know, I think I was like a nine. And uh, equanimity was zero. And, you know, it was, mm. I was rating it that way. But then I did six minutes of meta. And everything started to move toward the four, five, and six range. And then when I did open awareness, oh, I, I think I told you, I, 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 I had sort of another unity experience. I mean, like, I was the extraordinarily loud noise emanating from the functional MR scanner. And it was like, wow, are you kidding me? You know, like, I, I, that I could move, you know, from the depths of hell to, you know, that, that this, this place of transcendence in 18 minutes was pretty, pretty extraordinary. Have, have you ever heard, uh, Emily has a, a, a phrase I like she sometimes shares, which is uh, related to what you're saying. She, have you ever heard her say where, where, there's, where there's angels, there's demons? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and vice versa, where there's demons, there's angels. Yeah. Heaven and this heaven and hell thing comes 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 as a package. <laughs> That's interesting. So, okay, I, I want to say one thing here, which uh, just like another dimension of this for the F, for those that have not been in a functional uh, MRI <laughs> machine, uh, I have been a couple times, uh, not nearly as many as you. It sounds. <laughs> Like who uh, get it, gets in there for fun on a on a Wednesday evening, but um, well, one thing that I found I was struck by was how much this machine sounds kind of like a mix between like ma- magnets clanging at a really high volume with some sort of bizarre proto-human tribal drumming <laughs> sounds. You know. Would you, would would you agree with that description? Yeah, but it's also it's it's weirdly unfamiliar, right? It's very unique. Yes. I've never experienced anything like what what and that And you was know, like. I as a radiologist should know the answer to this, but I don't even know what, you know, I don't know from where that sound emanates. Yeah, well, from a, as a, from a meditating perspective, though, <laughs> it's, it changes the question. Where does that sound emanate? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. You know what? You know, I don't know what's actually causing it. I mean, I know that there are these 
Rapidly but it's strange. I did not expect that it would have gradients, but those kind yeah. of tones. Well, at some point, I want to talk to someone about that and be like, "What is going?" We need to find someone who knows about that because that's to me an well, uh, a I, mystery. I, I have I have resources. I'll report. Okay, we'll 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 talk after. So okay, so you you're in this fMRI machine in the second experiment. You opted into. They give you a dose. They're did do their baselines. It's hell. <laughs> you make it through without pushing the button, and then as you start to meditate, all of your kind of subjective scores start to stabilize and your experience starts to get more easy and open. And then finally unity experience one with the screaming tribal magnet machine that you're encapsulated into. Um, so, uh, And then, and, and actually, and then they're done with me. Well, no, then, no, then I did the musical rating thing. Went back to that. And now they're kind of done. The experiment's over, but I'm still, I'm still dosed. And so they took me back to the room, which is, you know, it, it looks like a very nice room that a psychologist would use with a couch. And I'm, and I'm back there and I love the room. You know, it's like now my favorite place on earth. And they, they really are encouraging me to put the headphones and blindfold back on and lie down. And I do that for about three or four minutes, and I went, no, I want to meditate. I want to confirm or at least investigate now what the psilocybin effect is in relationship to my practice, which had evolved, changed quite dramatically since the first experiment. And I wanted to see if I could begin to understand or feel the relationship. So I did. So you switched back into a more sort of formal, you wanted to sort of test what if I do the normal formal meditation yeah. stuff I'm used to that I've got these grooves on in this yeah, state. Yeah, and, and what was really, and it was just the second I sat up, it kind of had had confirmed this, like, oh yeah, oh yeah, the psilocybin, the psilocybin just informs practice in this, you know, for me, it it more effortlessly allows me to experience spaciousness, openness whatever you know put your favorite word in there and that's not i think it's useful to say that's not an uncommon experience and that's not everyone's experience um and and, and i know in our pre-call you really stressed to me at one point which i think is is good and responsible you know that this experience that you're describing is really, as you said, N of one, which is, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the very geeky way of, of putting, you know, this is a sub subject one, <laughs> sub to what there's was one data point. Um, and, and, and yet obviously this is not an uncommon experience, um, based on the research I heard Roland report on, um, that they've done. Uh, it's very tied to the set and the setting and the conditions that you did it in. And yet, yeah, you know, people, plenty of people have much 
much more difficult or negative experience. Perhaps many people have the experience of, of, uh, of those numbers going up, you know, of getting more and more disturbed. Um, it's quite possible. Anything you want to share on, on that side of things? On the, or on the dark side? Well, no, just, yeah. And the, and the, you know, situating this, what is a basically a very glowing report right. of, of using psychedelics, um, inside of a larger container of, you know, there's a wide range of possible phenomenal experience, you know, and people react and respond differently to different substances and situations and conditions. And, you know, it's complex, it's complex. And it's, you know, obviously we're not doing, I'm not doing this series to try to promote the use of psychedelics per se, but rather to explore, to explore them more openly since it's, they've been such a taboo subject and that taboo is now finally, especially with the science moving forward on it, starting to open up a bit more. And I think as contemplatives, you know, it's, it's our, also our responsibility. I, I feel, you know, to be op to, to openly report on these altered states of consciousness, these fringe realizations of what can be experienced and known in the human condition. Um, and to, uh, if we find something useful there, like extremely useful, which it sounds like your experience was, and many people have reported the same, that we, you know, are open to talking about that if we can. And I think, you know, I, I feel like it's important to do that. Um, and so, yeah, the one, the one, the one you. thing that I would add, elaborate with is that. As glowing as my report may sound, um, there, you know, the first three hours of that experience were at times terrifying, and 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 there was an element of just dysphoria, either from like this real deep visceral discomfort. Um, yes, that I just had to kind of hold and embrace and be okay with, and why yes. I was able to be okay with it, I'm not sure. You know, I, I, I think <laughs> could have something to do with I, your training I, I, I up to that so. point. I think perhaps. so. I remember, I remember <laughs> there, there was there was a really there was a debrief after the first experiment, and um, there was a social worker there, Mary, who kind of oversees a lot of these. And she was, I think she was running the debrief. And she, she said, boy, it, it, it seems like you had a very, uh, very powerful, very positive experience. It was, it, it's interesting the way that you were able to just go with it. And I said, you know, and it was really funny. I said, you know, you make it sound as if I had a choice. You know, this thing just felt so powerful. It just grabbed me and took me. And I I never even dreamt. I never even, yeah, I just, th there was no resistance, you know. I just, I, I felt like the only way to go was to let go. Um, mm -hmm. But I suspect mm -hmm. that if you don't, I think you could have a really, really dark, 
unpleasant experience. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not all sunshine by any stretch of the imagination. Good. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. <laughs> no, really. I mean, it's important. I think it's important to come back to that because, uh, you know, I'm overall, in a broader sense, very positive about this space, uh, as is obvious to anyone who's listened to the series. And yet, I also have had some very dysphoric experiences myself, even, you know, even to the point of, and I've shared this multiple times now, like l- losing touch with consensual reality and kind of going mad for a while. I think using that term accurately, yeah. not in some flippant way. When I, uh, and when, when I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Um, I just going to say that that's, that's, you know, that's the backdrop upon which this conver- these conversations are happening is it isn't all sunshine as you said. Right. Um, a little bit more context. When I, when I went the first time, when I went for the first experience, um, I did it for myself. When I showed up there two months later, I told him, I said, this one's all for you. You know, like I'd had enough, you know, but I was, I was willing to do it. I, I, I was so grateful, you know, to the, to the experimenters essentially. And, and I was, and I obviously still had some curiosity, but I could have, I could have done without it. I didn't, I didn't need that second one. Yeah, just, that's interesting. Just to give you a sense of that. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. It's consistent with my experience of working with that substance as well. Um, I often don't feel like I'm looking for it. It's more at times it, it finds me, right. and pulls me in, um, which is very different than the normal craving addictive pattern of many substances. You know, I'm not saying people can't have that relationship to these substances. I'm sure many do, but it doesn't seem to elicit that from, for the people that I've talked to. Um, okay. So I want to talk about one other thing before we, sorry, I just hit my bell accidentally. <laughs> it's a mindfulness bell going off. <laughs> okay. Back to center. Um, I would really like to hear a little bit about the experiences that unfolded after this second journey. Right. And no, it was, it this was, is it was of, the first journey. Oh, this, okay, there, there was, okay, so something happened yeah. 48 hours after right. one of these journeys, and, and that's something I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear about because, because it was a, and I'm basing this off of our last conversation, which was recorded, our prep call, which was recorded for the Patreons. Um, if you want to become a Patreon and hear these prep calls before uh, we record, you're welcome to. That's, this is my ad. This is my mid-roll ad, BuddhistGeeks.org or Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Um, but yeah, in our prep call, we were talking about how you had this sort of, um, for lack of a better term, I'll call it an awakening experience afterwards, a significant that's, shift. That's his term, the... folks. That's his term. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's my term. Um, to me, it's, and I say that also having worked with you for a number of years and knowing your practice somewhat intimately, um, at least to the degree you shared with me, which I think was a lot. And so I, to me, this is a very interesting thing because it, it points to the, the reality, which is that psychedelics and awakening actually can go together and do go together for many people. Um, psychedelics aren't just a way to open some sort of 
door, they can also be a way to help you take the door off the hinges. (laughs) (laughs) That's well said. So please tell us about this. Now that I've set you up, (laughs) I've set you up in a way that if I were set up this way, I would be really frustrated, but I've set you up in a way that, uh, now you have to, you have to say something. (laughs) Yeah. So I was dosed on Tuesday, on a Tuesday, functional MRI on Wednesday, and then jump on a plane and fly back from Baltimore to LA Wednesday night. I wake up 4.30 in the morning. Um, I think it's about 40 hours after I've been dosed. And uh, I'm just laying in bed contemplating a metaphor that I had been using to describe the hallucinogenic experience, which was related to a white water rafting trip that I I thought it was related to a whitewater rafting trip that I'd taken 20 years before and was thinking about whirlpools and how that ex- described the first part of the experience with the, the, the turmoil and the disorientation and then um, and rapids and how, you know, how the, the, the later parts of the trip are like going down rapids with rocks and fast water and then how the river eventually just sort of widens and the water slows and and suddenly I realized that that metaphor was really not about a whitewater rafting trip that I'd taken 20 years ago but had to do with the death of a young kayaker who'd been killed in a whirlpool about two years ago And the instant that I had made that relationship to, that association to death, I, in a matter of seconds, seconds, I found myself back in that state that I had um, described earlier. That, that six hour and 40 minute run that had happened at the end of a, you know, 28 day retreat. And there was, in addition to the sense of just real presence, there was extraordinary embodiment. There was this, this effervescence or this scintillating feeling that just perfused all of me. And and it wasn't something that I was entirely unfamiliar with. Um, I had been experiencing an increasing sense of embodiment with practice, but just, but intermittently, just for, for short, brief periods of time. And this was, I mean, I was just laying in bed. And now, effortlessly, this state arises and uh, yeah I just I, I was I was kind of blown away and I I practiced kind of effortlessly with it for about an hour and and now it's it's a little strange to say this but it's just something that um, that I can access 
fairly, pretty readily. You know, it, it, there's almost a little bit of it in the background always. I, I, I don't, kind of hard to quantitate, kind of hard to, to really describe, but let's just say there was this extraordinary shift that happened in a matter of seconds. And it's, and it's funny because for a year or more, it was really like WTF, you know, and, and, and that materialist, reductionist part of me was like, what was that? Like, was, was that in my spinal cord? Was that in my thalami? Like, come on, like someone's got to know this, you know, but nobody knows this, you know, like it's, uh, you know, and I don't want to offend anybody here. Like, I suspect that it is knowable, it is measurable, but not today. And I, and I, and, and kind of part of my, my work is just kind of like not, not needing to know anymore, you know, cause I don't, I really don't think it's knowable in my lifetime. And, uh, and if it is, I'm not going to be the one, <laughs> I don't have access to a functional MRI that way. And it's, it's too inconsistent. It's too variable. It's, uh, it's not, you know, doesn't happen frequently enough. Right. Right. These, these genuine experiences of awakening or enlightenment are typically characterized by their lack of predict, predictable arising. Whatever whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's like, yeah, you don't know when they're going to happen basically. So it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to design. I think Dave, Dave Vago has talked about this actually, who's researching enlightenment from a scientific, you know, uh, biological perspective it's hard it's hard to know when someone's going to have a <laughs> uh a fruition experience i like that word i like that that, that I, I will go with fruition that, that's what i yeah, want to completion I sign up for that yeah yeah so so this is interesting because well from the phenomenon phenomenology standpoint you know the description um it, it evokes a lot of early buddhist like I can almost hear this story being shared like in an old Buddhist text, you know, to change it to Pali and, you know, <laughs> change the vernacular a little, you know, this is a really, and this is my pragmatic Dharma background coming through mm-hmm. here, you know, studying with Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Folk and, and others who really are shameless about talking about these things. You know, I, I, I very much, I'm, I'm less shameless than they, <laughs> this is, I'm, this is true. Uh, I'm, I'm more shameful, more, more shameful than that. I'm, 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 I'm even, I, I, I don't talk about as much as they do or as openly, even as they do. They're totally shameless. <laughs> about this stuff. Um, yeah. and, and I appreciate that about them. You know, there's no politics. It's like, this is what we're about. We're going to talk about this stuff openly. Um, you know, this is really common. You know, when people practice and they up the dose and they really care, you know, there's something driving them that's, you know, this mysterious drive to, to know and um, to go into this stuff, like it really happens. It, it happens to people all the time that are normal people, um, you know, and it's an extraordinary thing. It doesn't take the specialness of the journey away, but it's not special in terms of, you know, it happening and happening to normal people. And that's one thing I want to 
just highlight because I think it's so important. You know, this is a human thing that humans can do. Um, and you, and you're describing your own version of it, you know, your own path and journey. And I think that um, it's unique in in certain ways. One of the, one of the big hesitations I have is, is that, you know, Daniel and Kenneth are extremely, you know, well-read and knowledgeable in the topic. I, I'm a newbie, you know, I've been at this six or seven years, and I've probably read much more neuroscience than I've read Dharma. I don't have a sense of these maps or paths. The terminology is just is foreign to me, and I don't, I don't feel at all comfortable using some of the words that you've used to describe the experience, but... Yeah, that's why I used them. But it was... But, it was nonetheless, you know, it was nonetheless very, very, very profound. Yeah, and it changed something. It sounds like moving forward, there was a, as you described it, there was a shift in your baseline perceptual mode, like how you're having access to something, even if it's not a quote unquote experience per se, or it's not a thing, but rather, and I'm speaking now for my own experience here, it's rather a background recognition, you know, a recognition of, of the ultimate background of experience. You know, it's like we did all these studies recently on, you know, uh, getting a picture of the, of the, of the background waves, you know, the big bang (laughs) waves. This is like, what's behind that? (laughs) Um, you know, we don't know, but, and, and that's the thing we don't know, but there's a way to, in, in terms of consciousness, I think there's a way to sense the, the internal or the sensory, um, version of that. I'm, I, I, and this is my own theory, so I'm not saying Albert agrees with this, yeah. but I, I think it's possible to feel into a primordial, uh, dimension of human experience, which is prior to phenomena. And yet is always imminently, it's not something that exists apart from phenomena. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, said the old Zenies. Um, matter is antimatter, antimatter is matter, saying current physicists. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but I, but I am saying, it, you know, from the consciousness and contemplative perspective, um, you know, we don't, we don't need science to tell us the significance of our actual felt experiences that they're valid in, in their own domain. And, uh, science can't dictate the truths of contemplative experience in the same way that contemplative experience cannot dictate scientific truths. Um, and that's, I guess that's what I want to say uh, on this point. Um, and it's a side point, you know, but I think it speaks to, your dual background, um, you know, and what, and, and your interests, uh, this is why it's not an issue for me because I, I see these as distinct categories of experience that have parallels, but aren't reducible to one another per se. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I sort of hold both of them, but in this, you know, it's not fully integrated. There's still, there's still a little bit of a, of a struggle between trying to... Yeah, let me know when you get fully integrated. Yeah. I'll 
<laughs> I've been I've been describing myself like I I I I say this all the time. I say like from the neck up, you know, I'm still kind of atheist, reductionist, materialist, but from the neck down, I'm kind of open to the mystery. You're a mystic man from the, neck, from the down. neck down. And and I stole that from Roland by the way, that that open open to the mystery <laughs> is great. I would describe to him. That's lovely. That's lovely. So, okay, here's another thing I want to throw out as we as we move toward toward wrapping this really interesting exploration up cuz I think your experience stands as n of 1 story of meditation psychedelics, you know, new revelations, experiences happening that are all inter intermingling and intertwined. Um, would, would you, would you say that's fair to say that there, that there's a, that, that it wouldn't necessarily be possible to pull apart what happened in Roland's lab from the work you've done on the no, cushion? No, I mean, that, that was, from everything that was, else. that was one of the most extraordinary, like, you know, Roland says, well, we were we we were interested in the dis, in dis, in investigating the relationship between contemplative practice and hallucinogens. I mean, the the one thing that I do feel very very confident about is saying there is inextric they are inextricably linked. I don't know how, but yeah, no, they're they're not one and the same, but they're 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 in the same domain. Very much in the same domain. The, you know, yeah, the circles, the, the relative circles on the Venn diagram overlap considerably. And so I guess now I'm curious, you know, to hear a little bit about what it's been like since. You know, are there any uh, conclusions are a dangerous thing? Uh, in in both science and contemplation, really, <laughs> because it's easy to get, it's easy to build a new reality up that that we then protect and can't see another one from because it becomes so sacred um, to us. But I'm curious. That being said, you know how are you understanding this? Uh, these experiences now, a year, a uh, year plus later, um, how are these things informing you? Um, do you hope that these studies progress? Do you have any? Do you have any? Uh, you know, ask, do you have any larger aspirations for where this this field goes now that you've been kind of introduced to it? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 trying to hold the experience as lightly as I can. I mean. There have been so many shifts in my life over the last seven years. I mean, you know, the impermanence is just so palpable to me. And so, um, I, I don't, I don't really have any, any take home message from, you know, there's no real lessons learned other than, you know, just seeming, seeming to own a little bit more of this sense of self-acceptance and gratitude. Those are just a part of me now. Um, I, I have to be honest, I don't, 
I, th- I think that this was a great first effort, first attempt, you know, to, to begin to map this this relationship between contemplative practice and entheogens forward slash hallucinogens. I'm more interested in some of the work that the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies is doing and the way that they're funding research um, in the, you know, application in using hallucinogens in the treatment of major depressive disorder, addiction, PTSD. Um, I, yeah, the, 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 the contemplative side is, is super interesting, but, you know, I, I, the, the other one, the other one just seems more, more promising. And, um, and that seems to be where my interests are these days in, in watching that, not in, not in participating that, not in participating in it, but, and supporting it, you know, but in whatever way I can. Vincent? I'm sorry, did you lose me? Hey, Albert, can you hear me? Oh, I'm sorry, I was muted that whole time. Can you you remind me the last thing you said? Because I was just chatting while being muted. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to edit this part out. I finished by saying that my that my interests were more around what the multidiscipline, you know, what MAPS was doing in terms of. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought that up, Albert, because on the one hand, it's interesting having this exploration of meditation and psychedelics and, you know, um, it's such a fascinating topic for a small group of people who are interested in the, in the two. And yet um, it's just this really small pocket uh, of activity and, and, and investigation, exploration that's happening in a much larger world where there is for sure more gross forms of suffering than our existential, you know, identity stuff that's, that's, you know, uh, impairs people's ability to function. And, and so like you, I'm also really fascinated about, about the stuff like the MDMA research that's happening right now, going into the third phase yeah, of trials. Yeah, I actually have a friend. Um, I, for I have a friend here in LA who's actually one of the therapists for that study, and it seems so promising. And uh, and I, yes. just a couple of weeks ago, the first twenty patients with major depressive disorder, uh, that study out of the United Kingdom was published, and 
And it's just, it's, it's amazing, the response rates, you know. And not to get overly enthusiastic, but that's the research that seems the most promising. Yeah, and really it's, it's sort of, it seems like culturally there's a process by which these substances in general are being opened up for exploration and, and across multiple domains in the same way that you could say mindfulness as a technology and inner thing is being opened up and applied across all these different domains. There's different applications and some of them are more explicitly helping people that are really suffering, um, you know, really having a hard time functioning and being, being alive. And that is so cool. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the primary reasons to support the, at least the opening of the research of this stuff, you know, and, and the willingness to explore and understand what's actually happening on a biological level, psychologically, et cetera. Um, and so you were part, you're part of that process and, and this little tiny subsect, which we're exploring here, meditating on psychedelics. But of course the big picture is so much bigger and um, I, I, it's good to remember that. I'm, I'm glad you brought that. Yeah. Up. As you were, ta- as you were saying that, I was thinking that it's interesting how, Really, the most solid work, even around meditation, is, you know, if you've had a major depressive illness or you have generalized anxiety disorder, those seem to be, and, and you know, maybe maybe some studies with, with pain are good, but the, the, more, the more suffering you're experiencing, the easier it is to demonstrate the benefits of contemplative practice. And that's not to say that everybody doesn't benefit. It's just from a, from a, research, percep- from a research perspective, the delta is easier to measure when you're, when you're really suffering. Yes, because the, the starting point is so much, so much more obviously difficult. So much more upside. So much more, we should say, yeah. measurable upside. There's, there's infinite, there's infinite upside, upside yeah. right? It's just we don't have the tools. Well, but we have to get some more subtle measuring devices, I think. <laughs> and it's cool, you know. To I, I, uh, I recall working for this philosopher named Ken Wilber, who is also oh, an yeah, incredible that's right. contemplative that's himself. It was really interesting working for him. He was a very unique and interesting guy um, out there, really out there. And he often talked about the relationship between transcendence on the one hand and compassion on the other. Um, it echoes the sort of wisdom and compassion in Buddhism. And, and he also used the terms eros and uh, agape, which are, are sort of in some ways similar kinds of notions and, you know, I feel like in a way what we're exploring is the, the eros, the transcendent side of this, you know, pushing the limits of human happiness, as Shinzen Young might say, or, um, you know, exploring these very altered, out there fringe states of consciousness. And yet there's a lot of people suffering in more gross ways. And there's this compassion that's needed to uh, respond to that situation as well. And to me, the fact that psychedelics open up both as possibilities when used consciously and well. And that's what the research is starting to show. And that's what humans have known for a little while now um, is possible as, as well as everything else that's possible that we discussed. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. 
anything else you want to add as we, as we wrap up any last thoughts or, or things that you maybe didn't get to say? You know, just that, um, the whole experience has left me really suffused with this sense of gratitude. Um, you know, for, for so much, but particularly for all my teachers and, um, and my Dharma buddies. And, uh, and I think that, you know, it's amazing, really. It's, it's amazing that we're having this discussion. Like, Buddhist Geeks was a really important piece of, of all of that. You know, the, the way that you opened so many doors and then the way that you, you, you and Emily became my teachers. And, um, yeah, I just want to, I want to tell you just how incredibly grateful, um, I've been, I am, you know, to you for so many things. It's, it, it seems really interesting to, to end up here having this discussion with you on a Buddhist Geeks podcast. So thank you, Vincent. Thank you very, very much. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Hmm. What a sweet way to end. Thank you so much, Albert. And, uh, and thanks for, yeah, just being willing to share so open-heartedly about your experience. I, I really hope it, um, inspires people and informs them and supports them. In, in some way in their own, in their own journeys. Um, yeah. Thanks for this opportunity. Oh. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.